I have a taste for things that glisten momentarily and then explode. And I have a taste for things that exist only for a moment. And I have a taste for encounters and occasions. And um, all of that has been informed by the fact that I have done plays since I was so little. conversations about the work behind the work with diverse artists from all over the globe. My name is Ruby Josephine Smith, and not only am I the creator and host of this podcast, I am a choreographer and contemporary dance artist. This is a podcast in process about process. I am not only fascinated by the creative process itself, but how to have better and more meaningful conversations about it with artists of different cultures, backgrounds, and mediums. Join me in digging deep into what it is that drives a person to make art. So this is a special episode today because not only did I get to deep dive into the fascinating process of an amazing actor and theater artist, but at the same time I had the chance to reconnect with a very old friend. Dylan Frederick is an actor, writer, and director who was born and raised in the Twin Cities. He has an MFA from the Yale School of Drama and a BFA from the University of Evansville. Dylan recently made his Broadway debut in Matthew Lopez's seven-hour play The Inheritance in 2019. He also makes music and summer camps. Dylan and I, as I mentioned before, go way back. We attended the fair school together here in the Twin Cities, which was a radical interdisciplinary art school for grades four through eight. I don't think we have really talked or connected since we graduated from there in 2006, when we were just two 13-year-old kids interested in theater and performance. Even back then, though, having the chance to act alongside him in several productions, most notably playing Helena and Demetrius in an amazing production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, it was clear that he had talent and presence and pure passion for the art and craft of theater. I've seen that from a distance, continuing on into his work today, and I'm so happy to be able to bring it to you into this delightful, wild journey of a conversation. In this episode, Dylan and I speak about how performance and play have always been a part of his life, despite being a shy kid, and the relentlessness of auditioning and the persistence and self-assuredness it takes to keep going on with it. Of course, we talk about his Broadway debut in The Inheritance and the process of making a seven-hour-long production, and then we get into the life cycle of theater itself, and how in order to love theater, you have to really love that process of making something and then tearing it all down again. We speak about it almost like a parallel to the cycle of loss. Dylan also reflects on the strangeness of traditional theaters simply not existing in this moment of the pandemic, which no one could ever foresee. And he talks a lot about camp and why he believes camp is the supreme medium for meeting and making, as he says, something you will hear he is clearly very passionate about. This conversation was so much fun for me, and I truly hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dylan Frederick. So 
Dylan, welcome to Process Peace. It is such a pleasure to be talking with you today. Finally. It's it's an honor to be here, Ruby. I want you to know at the outset, this is the first time ever that I've been interviewed. Really? Except for a job. <laughs> well, that's so, great. I am fascinated I'm by actors processes in particular i think it's such a different medium than so many others so i'm really interested to get into this do you still can would you you know for anyone listening we knew each other when we were very young and we acted in plays together i think the last time we acted in a play together was in 2004 or something yeah i think Uh, so we were very little but i also saw you in a play in high school a production of macbeth do you still would you call yourself an actor now or you don't say that? I wouldn't say that. That's interesting. No one's ever asked me that, but I think no one else knows that quite so much about my past. Um, I would uh-huh. not, but I'd like to again. Honestly, I miss it. Um, but I think that dance has become more my theatrical medium and I like the blend of dance and theater. So within being a dancer, I like to think of myself as kind of an acting dancer, I guess. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. The acting that you did informs all the dance. Yeah, work you did. exactly. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because I always like yes. to start um, with a similar question for everyone. Um, going yes. back before we knew each other, before um, your whole career and ask you, what is your first memory of creating something? I have a couple memories from being very young and making stuff. And I'm not sure which came first. Mm-hmm. One thing I know is that I really liked puppets. And I had a lot of little puppets, um, finger puppets and hand puppets. And beyond the actual puppets, I had a lot of Beanie Babies. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a lot with the Beanie Babies. Um, they had little sort of um, lives and worlds and little stories. And my sister and I would play with the Beanie Babies. We sort of, that's an early creation that I remember is sort of like bringing those Beanie Babies to life. Um, and then other things I remember really well are like um, directing a Christmas pageant sort of Christmas carol type thing when I was very little with my relatives on Christmas. Um, again, kind of theatery there. So I guess lots of sort of playful theatrical projects from the time I was really little. M- many of them had to do with bringing inanimate objects, puppets, beanie babies, figurines mm-hmm. to life. Amazing. I love how generation specific that is because it sounds so much like my own childhood. I It just jogged a memory that I had um, Beanie Babies and named four of them after each of the Beatles and would put on Beatles shows. <laughs> you had a lot of Beanie Babies too. I did. I did. I think that was a product of our generation. So I guess you were always kind of performing from a young age. Did you feel like Like, did you like to be the center of attention or are you a bit more shy and just came out in performances? That's a great question. I was always interested in performance from a young age. Mm -hmm. I also feel that I was very shy. Mm -hmm. So when someone would ask me to do something or perform or say that funny thing, you know, oh, they, you know, they turn on the camera, do that funny thing you just did. I definitely say, I always am saying, no, I don't want to do Mm -hmm. that or sort of shaking my head or pretending I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, And that is really, I mean, that's, that's a, I, that looks like it's a difficult thing to deal with as a parent and probably for my peers too, that I'm acting in these sort of performative ways, but I'm also kind of pre- being shy or pretending to be shy. Mm. I don't know. It's not, 
it's not clear to me what is going on. But no, Ruby, like when you say, did you want to be the center of attention? It looks like, uh, it looks like I really do not. So how I ended up wanting to act is a big mystery to me. Really? Do you, do you have any sort of ideas within that? Any sort of threads that maybe start to connect through? I think I really liked plays and puppet shows from the time mm-hmm. I was a little boy. And I liked seeing them a lot. And the idea that I could be involved in them was very enticing to me. Mm-hmm. But the idea that I would also have to be like the center of a great lot of focus, I don't know that that has ever been that appealing to me. I feel more comfortable now with being in a room and being looked at and listened to, but it doesn't come naturally to me. That's really interesting. Was it more kind of the characters and the storytelling then, do you think that made you start to actually get on stages? Yeah, I think I was really interested in like how a play got made Mm -hmm. and all the things that went into it. I mean, I guess I've known this for a long time, Ruby, is that my attraction to the theater had to do with just kind of the the whole event of a play. Mm -hmm. And then to get involved with a play at our age, the most logical thing was to act in one. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of joy that came with acting in plays. Like you'd get to make a lot of friends, for example. (laughs) And that was certainly my, a big attraction for me to it. But I think if it had gone, if if it had been available to me, I would have preferred to like direct plays from a little, from a young age. Interesting. But that wasn't available to us. If you remember, right? right? Like if you want to do a play at school, you're going to act in that. Right. Yeah. Not until high school was there kind of the option of directing. Right. Right. And as soon as there was, I was interested in playing with that. But, but then later on, I start to see that you have a great deal of power as a performer mm-hmm. in the actual, you know, you're sort of a master of the present moment. So um, you still have a lot of control over the live event and mm. the proceedings as an actor that uh, I do really appreciate. Yeah. And um, I think similar to dance too, I mean, to be a great choreographer, you have to study how to dance first, I would assume. Right. You, know, you have I, to know kind of the craft of the people you're directing or choreographing or whatever it is so can you Dylan can you go through kind of what your um trajectory of theater has looked like so from kind of discovering Mm -hmm. it to studying it to where you are now I know that's kind of a big big time period to cover but um yeah just kind of tell us about what that path has been for you when I was a very little boy so before probably before I was 10 years old, I knew that I liked the theater. I would go to see it. My grandmother would bring me to plays. My parents, I would do sort of play-like things in my house, but I had no notion of how to be involved in a play mm. in like a in a bigger way. When I was 10 years old, um, I transferred to this school where you and I met, which was the Fair School. Mm-hmm. And that was an art school. That opened my eyes to... Um, a whole world of being able to be involved in the arts, like, and particularly in, in theater and performing in stuff with other people. Um, my mother was always a fiction writer and a poet. And so I knew that art was a thing that existed in the world and it could be your job and your life, but I didn't really understand how 
I would find my way as a performer probably till I went to Ferris School. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, I started auditioning for plays. Like my entrance into the world of the theater actually was like really had a lot to do with auditioning. We would audition for plays at school. I would audition for plays at local companies. And I was largely unsuccessful at those auditions. And that's really my one of my earliest memories. And mm -hmm. it's so funny because even still today, so much of my life as an actor has to do with auditioning and with being unsuccessful in those auditions. And it's just funny to see that that's how it started, like how it started, how it's going. It's like, <laughs> it's exactly the same when I was nine and 10 years old, just starting to audition for stuff, really not getting into plays. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe I'd get a call back. Maybe I wouldn't even get that. Mm -hmm. But I was often just not getting in. And um, I got into my first play when I was 10 years old and um, had relatively small roles in the theater uh, for probably like five years and had a lot, again, not very successful with auditions, was not getting into all sorts of things that mm -hmm. I was auditioning for all the time. And uh, really, at the, by this point, by the time I'm in high school, and you would know this from knowing me through these years, like this really became my sole obsession. And I was kind of like a person who only did this. Mm -hmm. Once I was really doing plays, I stopped doing Boy Scouts, football, church, really everything, mm -hmm. and only did plays. I just found that to be like a, an all-encompassing thing that could occupy my whole self. So um, went to a performing arts high school. Then I go to college and I again do acting there because when it was time to go to college, I just thought, you know, I need to go to college. That was something I thought I needed to do. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I went to college for acting at a BFA program at the University of Evansville in Southern Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I keep acting here through to get an MFA at Yale and um, I guess an important thing to say is that during this time, these later years, I begin to kind of expand my reach beyond just acting. So I'm writing plays and musicals mm -hmm. and directing that kind of stuff. And um, sort of jack of all trades, master of none. I mean, even though I'm getting two degrees in acting, I've been acting since that time I was very little. Yeah. Like, I'm really just interested in doing too many other things. And I guess technically I was a master. I got a master's in acting. I mean, so yeah. I should be able to say that I am a master at it. But I was doing too many other things all the time. And then I leave school. And I have to forge a relationship with being an actor that has nothing to do with school. Mm -hmm. And you were able to sort of get out of school um, at a good time and sort of not and not look back, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, there's definitely a sense of loss and confusion for me when I leave school. You know, after all these years, I'm 24 years old or something when I get out of grad school, yeah. and it's my first time out of school. In my whole life and now I am an actor and um, auditioning is the whole thing no more classes yeah. no more plays because no one's casting me so um, it's all auditions and um, uh, and now I'm at a place where I um, you know I finished up a play right before the pandemic 
And now I do all sorts of things. I just never thought I'd be in this position where there's no theater going on. I mean, yeah. I never thought I was driving yesterday and I thought like, this is so crazy that this thing that I wanted to do is in this sort of coma, mm -hmm. you know, like the theater is, uh, it's just out for a bit. And like, I never imagined of all the things I thought about with this, with doing theater for my life, you know, I never thought, well, it won't, it won't be it happening. Won't, yeah. It won't. Yeah, it's yeah. unavailable. So at this point, um, I'm I'm sort of my creative life just looks a little bit different. Yes. Well, you just drew this straight line through all of the topics that I wanted to touch on at some cool. point. So now I'm just deciding where to go from there. Yeah. Um, well, going back to the auditions, I think it's so yes. interesting that that has been so repetitive throughout your life which of course I mean that is the life of an actor but to be so persistent after so much rejection I think not many people would be able to take that like I know per people personally who after being rejected a certain number of times you just kind of give up um, and so I'm wondering how that's been for you how do you find kind of the motivation to continue and continue because I think it takes a great deal of kind of trust in the process and hopefulness as an artist to do that. So I'm curious about that. Auditions are challenging for me. And um, it's interesting. It hasn't crossed my mind to give up. I, I audition a lot. I mean, can I, how clear can I make this? Like maybe for every 200, 150 things, do I get something? Wow. That um, is a lot. Yeah, it's really bad. I mean, my, I'm really bad at booking jobs out of auditions, but I nevertheless, I persist <laughs> and I enjoy doing the auditions a great deal. Mm -hmm. I suppose I don't enjoy all of them, mm -hmm. but for the most part, I, I don't, they don't make me too nervous and they're not too upsetting. They're, they're a chance. They're so little, you know, mm -hmm. they're very short. They're very, they're often really actually just very brief and you only have so much time to prepare for them. Mm -hmm. And they're unusual because you're not really working on the thing. You're sort of like pretending to be on the project for the moment that you're in there. Yeah. And it's sort of a, the feeling I have when I go into an audition is just, this is who I am today how can I help you and um that's like a rather pleasant feeling yeah I think if I were trying to say like this is who I am please like me or mm -hmm. something like that it would be really more taxing do you think you used to be more like that have you kind of grown to this place or have you always just naturally been able to bring that into well action. maybe because I, I don't know ruby maybe because i did them so much as a little kid yeah i am now more comfortable with the whole setup i mean the i acknowledge that the whole setup is very weird you know mm -hmm. you have these like people in the room and they're seeing all sorts of people who look like me go in one after the other and they're sort of like seeing if we're gonna be the thing they want. Mm -hmm. It is very odd, but I'm pretty 
comfortable with it happening. Well, what about the play that you did book more recently? Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the play you're in, The Inheritance, um, which I was shocked when I found out it's almost seven hours long. I had no idea. Um, yeah. Can you just kind of briefly talk about what the play was, just to have some context? Yeah, so all that whole conversation about auditioning where I'm saying I'm really not, I'm so unsuccessful, you know, it takes 150 or something before I book the inheritance. That was the thing that, that was a job that I got and I got that off of some auditions. That's amazing. And, um, Which won, that, I think, a Best New Play Award on Broadway. It's won all sorts yeah, of stuff. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it was, it was, it was in England mm-hmm. and um, was just a huge hit. And so they brought it over to the U.S., um, and they had to put some actors in there who were um, local hires living in New York, and that I was. And well, that was a that was a major moment in my life, not just to get that job, but to actually be in that play. Yes, because it was so majorly long. It right. was that it was about seven. Part one is three twenty. Part two is three fifteen or something. Wow. Um, and uh, it, but it was also a major moment in my life because it was such a good piece of artwork mm. that I was a part of. And it had been it had been a long time since I'd been a part of something that was so majorly good. Mm. And um, I guess maybe not ever. I'm not sure that I've ever been in a play that was as beautiful as The Inheritance. Wow. It was. Um, it was beautiful in its conception. The whole idea of it was uh, uh, astounded me then. And like, if I went back and read it again today, I would be just as in love with it as I was when I first considered it. And like um, the whole thing that Matthew Lopez is doing with the play, you can, if anyone's listening to this and they want to read the play, you can read, I think you can get it. You can buy a copy of it online, mm-hmm. though I don't think you can watch it anywhere. I don't think we recorded Um, I believe there's a trailer but yeah I couldn't find any there's probably a trailer yes but it's a good good read Mm -hmm. it's a tremendous read and um, what he's doing in there uh, is he is responding to uh, his favorite novel E.M. Forrester's Howard's End and um, is imagining all sorts of different stuff about Forrester when he wrote it and um, a, and, and Matthew Lopez, the playwright, he's imagining stuff about his life now and how it relates to the piece. Mm-hmm. And um, then has concocted this very epic uh, play where he tries to like mash up this Forrester with this contemporary life yeah. he's living in New York. And then the design and the direction, uh, the music in it, it's just really like, uh, it's just a thing of total beauty. And it astounded me every day. Mm-hmm. And it was very intimidating to be a part of. It was intimidating because, yeah, it was very long. And just practically, if you guys can imagine, like w- learning something that's that long and the sequence of it was, that just took forever. I mean, yeah. to know like what scene comes after what scene, that really, I, it wasn't until the play was opening that I was even wrapping my head around that. During previews, I, I would be on stage thinking, I have no idea what comes next. I have wow. literally no idea what comes next. It's too long. <laughs> but then um, at a certain point, um, learning that and uh, being able to just really like, <laughs> being able to really just ride it and not, you know, I, I know everything. I could have done it with my eyes closed by wow. the end. 
does it get kind of internalized? Like, I remember this feeling of performance becoming internalized in you. Um, and it just kind of comes out naturally. You don't have to think about it anymore. That's Ruby. That's exactly right. Especially because we did it for six months and it certainly by the second month of doing it, it's like, it's this thing that it lives in me. And once it was closed, I had the whole thing in my mind, mm. you know, visually, and also all the words were in my head and yeah. I could run it back when, when we ended, because we ended a little bit prematurely because of the pandemic, I would just like at night, if I couldn't fall asleep, I would lay in bed and play it back to myself, both because I knew it and I was so happy to know something, but then also because I loved it so much and it gave me such comfort to play it back. And I think an important thing about this play is it included this amazing performance from this actor, Paul Hilton, mm -hmm. who um, I had seen once before years ago on the West End I had seen him in a play and then I got into this play and he was in it and I got to watch him every day and everything he does is truthful and spontaneous and just amazing. That's beautiful. I like how you use the words like truthful and spontaneous for a theater performance because of course it's all rehearsed and repeated and yet it is about that really like truthful moment. And I think yes. that's what you—that's what comes across in good art and good performance. Yes, and Paul Hilton is nothing if not truthful and spontaneous because just so surprising to watch. The mm -hmm. first act of part one ended with a 20, 30 minute monologue wow. that Paul Hilton did. And uh, I was just on stage with the other members of the cast silently seated watching that monologue mm -hmm. every night. And, um, 20, 30 minimum, you know, you think, oh my goodness, who's going to have to sit there and listen to that every night? But it was always something to behold. And that is, that's crazy. I mean, Ruby, we would listen that to that crazy. monologue on stage. We'd sit there and watch him do a 20 minute monologue every night for months. And it was always so, so terrific. It's crazy. I would I, give anything to see him do that that's again. That's amazing. That really strikes me because the phrase that came to my mind was this kind of devotional attention. And I think we've really lost that in so many parts of our lives. Like I know just through technology, I think my attention span has gotten down to zero. <laughs> I mean, it's so hard to pay attention to something for so long and to be a part of this work that goes on so long and yet has this ability to capture your attention is really, that's really powerful. I admired The Inheritance a great deal for its risk that it takes in saying, you know, like we we ask for your attention, not just for one or two hours, but for seven. <laughs> and, and even visually, the piece is so minimalistic and mm. um, sparse in what it, in what it shows that you're, it's not like you're. It's not like when you sit and binge a television show. You're looking at all these different locations, and this is flying by you, and that visual effect, and blah blah blah. The inheritance. If you look at pictures from the inheritance um, on Broadway, you can see the set. It's just mm. pretty much. It's just a white table uh, with nothing on it for seven hours wow. and even just that visual ask to say like please sit with us and look at this um so so much simplicity was that was so admirable yeah um and i think challenging too because the play was not going to run for as long as 
we had all hoped. Right. Um, and uh, that's a difficult thing. What happens on Broadway is you're running the play and you, you're, you're wondering when you're going to have to close or how long you can stay open. And you never really know. And then one day they email us and they say, we're going to have a full company meeting. And they bring us all together and they say, we're going to have to close this play. You know, we can't keep it open. We don't have the money. We're not selling enough tickets, whatever it might be. And um, so we were set to close that play. The pandemic just shut us down a couple of days early. Oh, that's hard. How yeah. was it to inhabit a character for that long? Were you thinking of it in that way? Or I'm just curious what that kind of felt like. The inheritance was unusual for a few of us in the sense that there was probably seven or eight of us who played all these different characters. And, and in some ways also we're kind of playing ourselves as just like young men in the company. It was challenging to uh, be a bunch of different people but again, it becomes the sort of thing, it becomes very easy. And in the, in, the, in, the in the way that the play is conceived, it's very easy to imagine yourself as different people because there's not a lot of big costume changes or scenic changes. You just sort of enter the circumstances of a scene as a different person. Mm -hmm. And then um, if you believe you're this other person, you know, it's actually, I think everybody kind of goes with you on that journey in a play that's so long with so many different scenes, um, you know, I think the audience forgets certain characters. I mean, sure. I would do that whole, I would do that whole play. I'd be up there for seven hours in my big Broadway debut that I was so excited about. And I would meet people afterwards and they would ask me how, if I, how I was involved with the piece. And wow. I would say, I was in it, you, you fool. Yeah, I was in it. I was on stage. You know, I played this guy and I played that guy. Well, maybe and you just did such a great job of seamlessly being so I was many different so, people. I was so transformational. Right. I, I think it, it always spoke to, you know, or I'd have friends come to see it and I would ask them afterwards, like, oh, what did you think about this moment? And they'd be like, that I can't remember that mo. I don't remember that happening. When did that happen? And I'd be like, yeah, this is a lot. You know, it's yeah. very long. Yeah. Speaking a little bit more generally, what is the process for you of crafting a character? I'm curious of what that looks like. Crafting a character is really interesting, isn't it? I think there are different ways to go about it. Like I think I think for me, if I'm crafting a character for an audition, which is so much of what I actually do, mm -hmm. um, that process is more slipshod and I'm less rigorous about it because I have a little bit of time and I'm, I'm, I, I hardly even know. Oftentimes I don't have a script. I have no idea what this person is. So I'm making up so much stuff. Mm -hmm. I think the principles that I go by when I'm making a character is to look at given circumstances of this person, um, probably first their likes and their dislikes things in the script that I that they they overtly say that they like or dislike or that I can glean that they like or dislike and this is my version of that character you know I I know that if you were to read the same script you would think that this person likes and dislikes um are, are different than than what I perceive so first I think likes and dislikes just base base level is really helpful for me 
And then to think about uh, the things that the person wants, both on a plot level and then also on a super level, something greater that attaches all of those plot objectives mm -hmm. together. So there is some super objective that is hovering over the entire piece. You know, mm -hmm. I'm lucky for an audition. I get the whole script and I can think like, what is driving this character through the whole play? Because mm -hmm. of course this character has all sorts of little things they want in the course of the thing. But is there something that connects these little desires together that can sustain my work? You know, is there a thing that I can play easily so that when I am this person, I can attach to a super objective? You know, mm. I, I, I want legacy. I want power. I want a certain kind of love from a parent. Mm -hmm. I want um, freedom, you know, something like that, that I can see, oh, every time when this person is climbing the mountain, when this person is uh, wanting to get a phone call from their parent. They're wanting the same thing there. It's just the big version of it. And that thing they're never gonna get. So that's why that thing can propel me forward. And that's why that thing is worth watching because it's so kind of tragic. Mm -hmm. It's like a thing. So it's really, I, I think for me, likes and dislikes are helpful. And then just wanting something. Yeah. The worst thing for me, and it's an easy trap for all of us, is to start thinking that the character is like, a whole lot of how I say this and how I look and mm -hmm. how it sounds, you know? And I think when I'm at my worst, that's what I'm doing. I'm scoring it. I'm saying, oh, this is the way in which, you know, I, I want to say it like this, or I think it should sound like this. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's really not fun to watch. Mm, because and it's more surface level. It feels sort of, yeah, it yeah. feels kind of un unfounded and ungrounded, I guess. Mm -hmm. So um, I think those, if, looking at those things in character are really helpful. And if I, can, if, I can, if I can examine those things and then easily embody them, that's great. That's a great feeling. That, just ha that doesn't happen all the time. Mm -hmm. And I have to be diligent about doing that because it's so much easier to just memorize the lines and say them in a way that I think they should be said. Right. Um, but it just... It, in the end, it destroys me. Yeah. And um, it's not really what I'm doing this for. Yeah. Do you feel like you... I, I've talked to a lot of artists about how they see the world often through their artistic medium. And so I'm wondering if you have a sense of seeing and observing people differently because of this process that you have. Yeah, gosh, I... I can't help it. It's, mm -hmm. it's, that is the way that I see. I mean, the whole way that I understand things that happen in the world is all informed by acting. I guess on a couple levels, one thing that I, I know is that performance has affected the way that I see everything as performance. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I think that um, I acknowledge that in some ways performance is all invention. It's fake, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not real. It's not real. But then in acknowledging that like, it's not a real thing, 
uh, and that nothing, you know, you can kind of also acknowledge that nothing is a real You're thing. Really so <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very existential. So that like in, in, in some ways it feels like performance is kind of the real thing because it's mm. the moment where if, ev if everything is fake, performance is the moment where we acknowledge that it's fake mm. and we develop it, you know, and we're working on it in an active way. And then in another way, it does seem that my interest in other people has been informed by my by my acting stuff because I am always curious why people are doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And beyond just being curious, I'm actively trying to figure it out. And Interesting. Um, I kind of consider it a job, my job because mm -hmm. I think it is my job. So it then is. it's this funny thing. Yeah, it's this funny thing where like, I, I do really feel, yeah, I feel like such an actor in conversation with people because I see, I see it all as acting. And beyond, let me go a third point here, Ruby, I would say that because um, so much of what I've loved have been these little plays, these moments where we get together for a short amount of time and we, we work in this very, um, this, this, this very, he heated collaborative togetherness mm -hmm. on a single thing you know we have a shared destiny if only for a moment mm -hmm. and we pursue that all together and then we disband and some of you know some of those people i never see again i'll never see them again and i know that always when we come together mm -hmm. the act of coming together is the act of saying goodbye mm -hmm. and um that's beautiful i think i have a taste <laughs> that's beautiful that's, no, that's i have so a taste <laughs> yes i have a taste for that mm -hmm. i have a taste for things that glisten momentarily and then explode and i have a taste for things that exist only for a moment and i have a taste for encounters and occasions and um all of that has been informed by the fact that i have done plays since I was so little and these mm -hmm. things exist. They've never existed before. Even, you know, there's been, there's been thousands of productions of Seussical the Musical, but <laughs> I'm in a production of Seussical the Musical, you know, that has never existed before and it will never exist again mm -hmm. when it's done. And um, that is to the participants, a big opportunity mm -hmm. and filled with meaning. So that in that way, I see everything like that. You know, yeah. I just I just lost um, my dog. I have had a dog. My family's had a dog for eleven years, and he just died. Mm. And that, just even in thinking about that, the last couple of weeks, I've been like, um, you know, I've been like, I know this feeling because mm. this sense of loss. Um, I have experienced over and over again in my life every time something starts and finishes. Does it um, ever get easier or is it maybe just the ease of knowing that that is the process itself? Well, the dog was so sad for me. I'm very sorry. And that is sad. Yeah, I know. And thank you. The dog was so sad for me. So does this ever get easier? Now I'm thinking, no, it doesn't. And I'm thinking some are easier than others. I just did a little job for a few weeks on a camp project and um, it was pretty easy to walk out of there because um, I, I guess I, I, I wasn't so attached to mm -hmm. it. I guess it'll just depend on the, on the, level the thing. Of attachment. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when the inheritance ended, 
there was there was a profound sense of loss Mm -hmm. on some of the things you know when i'm talking about playing that back to myself at night in my bed i see you know i don't think while it's happening oh you know this is a profound loss Mm -hmm. but i see that there i am in my bed like trying to imagine paul hilton doing his monologue over and over Mm -hmm. again and like obviously there is something in me some gaping hole that is just like that's been left by the by the play um Mm -hmm. and that'll be the that's gonna be the case for the rest of my life i mean losing rollo this dog i loved that is just the tip of an iceberg and the beginning Mm -hmm. of a long life of loss and and if i look back you know i've lost all sorts of things before the art of losing isn't hard to master isn't that some poem i think so (laughs) i've heard that before (laughs) um yeah does that make sense absolutely my mind is just going so many different places with that I think it's fascinating and I've never really thought I mean I think I've kind of subconsciously felt that a play or any kind of performance as this life cycle I mean especially talking about a character you're bringing someone to life and then they'll never be again um and it's just so interesting that we put ourselves through that and love it so much because that's what I always loved so much about a play. I mean, it was devastating when it would end and that sense that, you know, you're never going to see these people again. You're never going to be this character again, but it's, but you love it and you do it again. And I, I just think there's something really profound in that. I'm not even sure I can put it completely into words beyond that, but it's really Ab- interesting. Abs- I'm completely with you. I have a taste for that transient moment and I don't know when I developed that but it is in me and um uh, i will always have a taste for it yeah yeah i think me too i think that's why i miss theater so much and why pandemic art making is not quite the same no (laughs) no and i i don't like so much these things that you know i can't necessarily say this because let me say this ruby one thing i love is i love albums you Mm -hmm. know and other people love things like, you know, I've loved books before. And I know there are people who love also, you know, the, and those things exist forever. I've loved films and those have existed mm-hmm. forever, yeah, you know, and I like to watch the same film over and over again or listen to the same album over and over again. And so I also, I also have a taste for that. And yet nothing I do has really lived forever. So... Huh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to just let that moment be. <laughs> yes. So interesting. Um, I'm really interested in theater in particular. I had a conversation with another actress. I mentioned Ellen Humphreys. And we had a conversation about theater as a craft rather than an art. And I wonder if you've ever thought about it in these terms. I wanted to bring that up with you as well, just because I think it's so interesting because it kind of, I mean, it questions the core of like what what makes art art. And if you're doing something maybe more technical or crafting, is that really in the same realm? When I'm acting or when I'm auditioning, which is often the version of acting that mm-hmm. I do most often, I don't always feel like I'm engaged in the process of making art. Mm-hmm. But I feel that I am in an artistic project. Yeah. When I think about making art, I think about telling a little secret. 
that only I know. And sometimes I really feel like I'm telling that little secret or I'm engaging with the little secret inside of me. And usually I feel that way if I'm uh, alone <laughs> or I'm writing, you know, writing something. Yeah. Um, um, it's harder to engage with that little secret sometimes when I'm in a room with a great many people and, and oftentimes it feels on a play like I'm working with someone else's little secret mm -hmm. on the inheritance. I knew from the minute I read that play that Matthew has a little secret that he is talking about in the inheritance mm -hmm. and that we get to see in that play. And I have little secrets too, but I don't think they make it into the experience that people have with the inheritance. You know, mm -hmm. I, I'm there for Matthew. Okay. Matthew Lopez, the man who wrote it. I'm I'm there because of his little secret and I want to make a lot of his dreams come true mm -hmm. and um I want to honor his voice and his intention, but it doesn't really feel like it's always like time for my little secret. It feels mm -hmm. like it's it's Matthew. So, in that way, sometimes acting doesn't totally feel that way yeah maybe you'd say it feels more like it's like a, a craft is that what you said yeah. yeah and i'm sort of putting my ear to the to the text and particularly to that person who wrote it mm -hmm. i do often feel that way i think other actors would say differently they'd say yeah. no this is my moment where this is my art you know and that and and maybe it it is sort of an uh, an art thing too I think it is really personal. I think it's how you kind of want to define it for yourself. And maybe for you, if you feel like your secrets are better told, maybe through your writing or directing, do you feel that way? Yeah, I think, look, I think it's important that on a piece, there is something glittering and golden in the center that is a little secret that is personal and urgent and unique mm -hmm. to an individual. And that um, anyone who's on that piece is is working to bring that to life. I feel like if something is so diluted and so collaborative to the point where you cannot identify or even foster any little secrets, then um, I, I don't love doing those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, I I really do like when something starts off as kind of personal mm -hmm. and um, has, has an implicit personal cost to it. And we're all holding that up, you know? What about your writing? Have you, do you, have you written since the musical? I think you said you wrote a musical before. I've written a couple musicals. Mm -hmm. I've written three musicals in my life. Wow. Um, and I really have liked doing that a lot. I've done that in very isolated states. I, mm -hmm. I write those music, but when I've written those musicals, I've been alone and I have been um, like in a spell and mm -hmm. I get out of that spell and I like look at the thing and um, I think, you know, like, I can't believe that I'm, I wrote this. This is not what I thought I was going to write. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's surprising to me and I appreciate that a lot. So I've written, I've written three musicals and I think part of the reason why I like writing musicals is that I don't feel like I'm very good at it. I have no mm -hmm. training in it or anything and I don't exactly know what I'm doing. I just like 
musicals. And when I have something to say, I seem to say it in a musical. It sounds like that's possibly, forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but more like what maybe the true like act of making art is for you. I mean, I the process of crafting a character is absolutely a part of art as well, but it, it sounds like this is maybe something that comes from a more personal, organic place. There's something unusual for me, Ruby, which is that so much of my experience in art making has been collaborative mm -hmm. and so much of it has been as an actor. But yeah, I have often felt like these times when I am alone or I am engaged um, with some singular thing just in isolation, I feel like I am uh, making art. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know how to deal with that. I don't know how to deal with the fact that sometimes it feels um, very different, except to give myself the opportunity to be alone and to, and to make stuff on, on my own. Yeah. I mean, certainly you must feel the same, that there are moments where you're with other people making things and that's a kind of art. And then there are moments where you, I, I have to be alone mm -hmm. and I'm making art there too. Absolutely. So I think making time to be alone is important and difficult for me. How, I mean, you touched on this kind of in the beginning, but how is it kind of with this uncertainty of when performance can become performance again. How are you feeling that out? It's been sad to be without theater for this long, not be able to see it, not auditioning for it, certainly not doing it, mm -hmm. um, hardly engaging with it. I read a play last week and that was just, I hadn't read a play in so long. And I watched a Zoom play last week and I hadn't done that in so long. <laughs> and that was really cool. I think a it's been really interesting to not have this thing that I've had for so long. It's sad. It's also just really interesting if you if I if I take theater out of my life completely, like what what goes in there and, you know, backpacking and camping and, um, you know, scrambling over rocks and starting fires and stuff. I mean, that's something I never thought I would do. And then I did so much of that yeah. on the Superior Hiking Trail. Uh, up in northern Minnesota and also just across uh, the west and that's I mean that's so great and I needed theater to like step aside for a moment in order to ever see any of those things yeah. so in that way I'm very grateful to you theater for taking this break and um, I think it's a good opportunity not just for the theater but all sorts of things for uh, to for some self-reflection you know so that when it comes mm -hmm. back it's the sort of thing that is um, more available and accessible um, and is simpler and more truthful than it was before. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's been catastrophic, obviously, to that yeah. what has happened here. Um, and I also think there's like an opportunity for new growth. And the theater is something that it's, yeah, it's very expensive to see a play. And a lot of people don't like seeing plays because they are alienating. Um, they're often mm -hmm. boring and um, white and long. Yeah. Um, and they're just largely inaccessible. So hopefully yeah. um, when the theater does come back, which someday it will, we are able to make some adjustments that are long lasting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think this whole slowing down of the entire performing arts world and maybe just art world in general is kind of giving time and space for this reckoning almost and just kind of reassessing what works and what doesn't for as many people as possible. Yes. And I think, you know, there's an interesting moment in education right now. And because I did a lot of theater, so much of my time in the theater has been spent in these educational institutions. It's an interesting moment for the institutions to consider, you know, what what exactly are they offering and how much are students paying for that? And what all does what they offer have to do with the actual journey of being an artist? Uh, I think it's good to say, you know, what, what are we offering here? Like, what is the, what is the value of this thing that we're selling and how much are people paying for it? And um, what can it do for the students? So um, Mm -hmm. that's good too. Yeah, I think so. Speaking of kind of institutions and programs, I wanted to talk to you about camp um, because you brought up to me at one point that I forget how you worded it exactly, but that camp is like the perfect platform for something. I don't remember what you said exactly, but I just found it so interesting because, I mean, I went to summer camp. I'm a Minnesotan, you know, Uh it was part of our growing up, but I never really thought of it as this kind of like profound creative experience. Um, I'm sure it was formative of theater because I started with theater camps but I've never really thought about it deeply. So I'm, I'm just curious of what this means to you. Well, I love camp so much and I think about it all the time. And so when you said to, you know, will you come on to my podcast and talk about art and process, I did say, you know, ask me about camp because yes. that is really the thing that is the intersection of um, all my thinking about art. And I'm sure what I said to you was that... Um, I, uh, that our, uh, camp is the supreme medium for meeting and making is perhaps what I said, because that is a thing that I have said from time to time. And then I even brought here my little book, Camp Theatricals. Um, and this is a book that I have sort of repurposed. It's, it's a book from the early 1900s about how to like put on a play at camp, like how to build the stage and, the wind machine and, you know, and and how to choose a play for your summer camp and things like that. But I've repurposed it to include a lot of my notes from my time working on camp projects. I worked on a bunch of international camp projects between 2016 and 2018. Uh, The first camp project that I was involved with was called the GACO project. And I actually had never gone to summer camp as a kid, even though everybody, you're right, goes to summer camp. I had (laughs) never wanted to do that. I had, again, going all the way back to what you were talking about at the beginning, like I was a shy kid who did not want to be around other kids really Mm. by and large. And summer camp was something that really made me nervous. Mm -hmm. So this camp project, um, GACO, that I was involved with, with a bunch of friends, um, was a thing where... We invited people from all sorts of different disciplines to come together and world build together mm-hmm. and imagine like, oh, you know, if, if we were to invite people to a certain place for a couple of weeks, the way you do with a camp, like what all can be done there? And so it was sort of a uh, reimagining of uh, the American summer camp structure, which is like um, pretty, pretty developed, pretty realized and and rather unchanging it's kind of like you know 
for the last 60 years, we have, we've had kids come to our summer camp and we do this activity and this activity and this activity. And then we do the talent show. And then we like <laughs> all, you know, sleep in these different rooms. And then we wake up and we sing this song that we've been singing for 60 years. And then we take this picture that goes on the wall and it's like right. of them, you know, we've been doing all these things. So, so this camp project was, um, kind of turned that on its head and said, like, what if every time we make a camp, like we make it a new thing and it's responsive to the moment and to the people who we have making it and to the people who are going to come. So it was a world building activity um, and it was a schedule design activity. And I fell in love with schedules while working on camp. It was a challenge to craft a camp schedule that was sort of a larger, elegant, integrated whole rather than just a series of events that popped off in time and space. I think there's something about like really intentionally planning things for people. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I don't necessarily like people planning things for me. <laughs> yeah. I never liked how scheduled and rigid camp was, but I do like the idea of planning that for other people and, and making it welcoming for them. That's right. I, I don't think I necessarily, that's why I would have never gone to camp because I also don't like people telling me what to do all day long and having a schedule I'm following. But I found that when students came to camp, they were excited to see like what exactly it is we had in store for them. If in fact it was intentional and well-prepared and yeah. a thoughtful gift, you know, um, and that it was filled with like all sorts of truth and surprises. I just love it a lot. I just have a lot of notes in here about I it. That. I also noted that the words truth and surprise keep coming up throughout this whole conversation. Yeah. I think yeah. it's really interesting and notable. Yeah, I think yeah, I think truth is always important, especially at camp, um, that people are offering things that are truthful to them. Um, and um, surprise surprise is good too i like being surprised and i like to surprise people but <laughs> definitely truth yeah that's a word that's a word that i have always overused and i i use it so much because i can't figure out another word that is that is better than that i think that's <laughs> we have these words that just kind yeah. of define our lives and paths so I think yeah and I, the camp project I was just on in Colorado I spent a lot of time um pleading with the instructors to make truthful content and mm. that's content that they feel like they have a relationship to that they are essential to and that could only exist um because they exist you know and mm -hmm. a lot of times um, in a camp setting, we bring forward things that we think other people will like, or they'll be fun or something like that, but they aren't necessarily essential to who we are. And they don't speak to the best parts of who we are. Like sometimes we just do the thing we're best at, we think we're good at, or, or even that we just like the most. Um, mm -hmm. And um, oftentimes it's the the more truthful offering at camp that um, builds a memorable experience and the memory is sort of the fabric of the community. So the yeah. more richly personal all the stuff at the camp can be, um, the more it can live on as a actionable memory. And much of the idea of, of camp when I was producing camps 
was um, to say, if we all live in this state of um, generous gift giving for these two weeks, and it's visceral, and it's something we feel, you know, we're giving good gifts, and we're getting good gifts the whole time together, that when we leave this place, yes, it will be gone, but we will have within us a standard for the rest of our lives for the quality of gift giving that we're able to do. And we'll make experiences for people when it's our turn to plan someone's party or to set up some space for somebody, you know, like we will do it in this way that we remember it being done for us at camp. I'm mm -hmm. very much a believer in that. You know, I think there's a lot of power that we have in experience design. Mm -hmm. um, to, to create a visceral lasting memory um, that is like psychophysical and um, uh, is repeatable. Well, I'm very glad we talked about camp. I find that so interesting. <laughs> I'm so glad we talked about camp and I wish I'd prepared more to talk about camp. No, no, it's great. I love camp. What else can I say about loving camp? Just that I didn't go as a kid, but now I love it. That's amazing. Well, I think we need to start wrapping this up a little bit. Um, near the end of the conversations, I always like to ask a couple questions. Um, and this kind of ties in. We were talking about love schedules. Um, I like to ask everyone if you have any daily rituals that help enhance the creative part of your life. No. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I can't even believe I'm saying no. If there's do nothing, I have also fine. anything I do every single day or try to do every day? Am I this undisciplined that I don't have anything I do? I don't have a little thing I write down or a little song I listen to or a book I read. Some days I don't, I even forget to eat until five o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. <laughs> I don't That's have really a single, I know those are crazy days. So, yeah, I don't have a single thing that connects all my days to one another. I'm just living carelessly from one to the next <laughs> with no thought about how they coalesce. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, you did say you love the momentariness of theater, so maybe that just translates to the rest of it's your life. It's so funny, yeah. I really should get something. I should get some discipline and some proficiency, you know. So, yeah. No. Okay, what's your second question? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's unique. I've never had someone say nothing, so that's great. Uh -huh. No. Um, no, the second thing is if there's anything that's been currently inspiring you. So maybe something that's kind of popping up around you. Absolutely. 100%. I have been inspired by so much recently. Cool. Um, I recently found a Tennessee Williams essay called The Catastrophe of Success. And um, in it, he talks about the success of the glass menagerie and the catastrophe of that and that's a tremendous essay that i mm. have read a couple times this month and just thought like you know wow this is this is quite an essay cool. so anyone who wants to check out that the catastrophe i want to check that out yes by tennessee williams it's really really awesome and um another thing that i have loved this month is a book called pleasure activism and it's by Adrian Marie Brown. And mm -hmm. it talks about, it sort of is a jumping off point from Audre Lorde's Uses of the Erotic, which is an essay I 
love and um, she's talking about the radical nature of following your pleasure and the liberation in following pleasure mm. um, and sort of the scarcity mentality we have with pleasure, but um, the possibility when we start to follow our pleasure and each other's. Um, that's a really cool book that is changing my life. Amazing. I'm going to have to check out both of those things. Thank you. Please do. <laughs> well, Dylan, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. It has taken directions that I did not predict whatsoever, and it's been such a joy. Ruby, thank you for hitting me up. I haven't talked to you in 10 years, probably more. It's pretty amazing. And that you just emailed me out of the blue to say, let's talk. That is really cool there's all these people from my life that i do not still talk to like from middle school and elementary school school yeah. you know and, and and you know it's easy to just be like i will never talk to that person again but you reached out and it's I did. awesome i'm it's, very glad i did <laughs> it's really cool and maybe we'll see each other again or we'll work on something together i hope so i'm saying it here first on yes the podcast. <laughs> officially <laughs> absolutely well, thank you Thank you, Ruby. For links to find out more about Dylan, his work, and what we talked about in this episode, head over to the show notes at processpeace.com. You can also follow this podcast on Instagram or Facebook at processpeace and get these episodes delivered directly to your inbox along with a whole lot of extra inspiration by subscribing to my Sunday newsletter via rubyjosephine.com slash subscribe. If you've been enjoying Process Peace, I would so appreciate you choosing to support this podcast in any or all of three ways. One, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Two, share your favorite episode with a friend or on social media. And three, make a contribution or become a sustaining member at buymeacoffee.com slash A huge thanks again to Dylan for this delightful conversation. Thank you to Cooper Lee Smith for creating the original music for this podcast. And a special thanks to you for listening.